In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, make us way to the prayer of all thanksgiving. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those trespass against us. Lead us not temptation, but from evil one, that Christ Jesus our Lord. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay. Right, so last time we finished up with um, John 11, um, and I left out the tiny section near the end in terms of discussion uh, that I think I might need to uh, come back to. I'm just trying to assign a moderator. Um, Mina Geds, you're now moderator. Um, just because I won't be able to keep an eye on the uh, waiting room, if that's okay with you. About my notes. So I had left out, I had rushed through, I should say, the last section about the um, the Sanhedrin meeting about um, the Lord. And in it, there was a comment made which said that Caiaphas was the high priest that year. And he says to everybody that was assembled at the Synod meeting that they don't understand that it might be better for one man that should die for the people and that the whole nation wouldn't perish. And then it says he didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and uh, not for the nation only, but to gather into when the children of God were scattered abroad. And from that moment, um, they took counsel about how to put him to death. Um, I wanted to come back to that before we get into chapter 12, only because it's a good background for what we're going to see in this chapter, and it's also a very important background for what's going to happen um during the trial like the next like right now we're in chapter 12 13 to 17 is going to be his goodbye to the disciples and uh um a discussion about the holy spirit and then we're going to get into the real trial and crucifixion and so all of this is connected to all of those things so i wanted to um emphasize what's going on i touched on it last time um as we said from the year 6 a.d and this sounds like just historical mumbo jumbo but it, it really does matter um we know that from before even 6 a.d um after the jews had been occupied by the the persians the babylonians the greeks and now the romans um the jews didn't always sit idly during these occupations um and so the jews actually had revolted um uh against the hasmonians um a previous occupier and that history of the rebellion um you can find in your bibles in the books of the maccabees um where there was a whole movement where they got together and they fought and they actually succeeded the reason why that matters is because the romans basically were saying if you guys behave you being the jewish nation we will continue to allow you guys to exist um, if you guys are willing to put on your cameras, it would be great, because I really do feel like I'm talking to myself. Um, uh, if, you, if you make a peep, um, then thank you for those who just flipped them on. But if you make a peep, um, at that point, um, we will destroy you. And they, and they meant it, right? Um, sorry, I'm just changing the settings that I can see you guys. Actually, those who turn on their cameras then turn them off. That sucks. 
Um, so <laughs> I'm on my own. Um, and so what the Jews were constantly worried about, actually more specifically the Jewish leadership were more worried about is that these rebellions that were happening, there's a bunch of, there's a whole group of people that were um, revolutionaries, if you will. They were rebels um, and they were constantly trying to overthrow the Romans. Um, this is actually who like um, Barabbas is. Um, thank you. Um, this is who Barabbas is later on um, during the Lord's crucifixion is one of those. He was leading an actual revolt. And so the Jews, Jewish leadership were scared of those people because if they, if they overacted, then Rome could step in and annihilate them, right? Now, this is even a more particular problem post 6 AD, because as we said, is that at that point, the Romans started appointing the high priest, right? We said that's the equivalent today as if the Egyptian government not just ratified, but selected our Pope, right? That's what was happening. Now, because the Jewish authorities are now taking their right to rule, instead of being from God or their lineage or their priesthood, they're taking it from the Roman government. So now it's in the interest of the Jewish leadership to stop any kind of rebellion, because they're worried that the Romans will also remove them. It's very, very complicated. So when, when the high priest is saying it's better that one guy die than for everybody, even though he was being prophetic, maybe by accident, he actually really meant that literally of saying, you know what, even if he's innocent, better that he die than they think that there's a real movement because the people were starting to view the Lord very messianically right, that he really is the, 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 the Messiah, but, but politically. And if he's politically the Messiah, it automatically meant no room for Rome, right? And so that's all going on, and we're going to see this even more in this chapter because we're going to be getting into Palm Sunday momentarily. Um, and what the people thought was happening um, on Palm Sunday in this procession might not be what we think it is. It might not be that they really view him as the son of God, but really that he's the new king um, coming to take over um, in Israel. So that was that part, and that connects to what we're going to read. So I'll, I'll read chapter 12 out to you, um, and then we'll get into it. So we know that we ended chapter 11. Um, that was the resurrection of Lazarus, and then the Jews get together, and we see that the, the miracle, this great sign of the raising of Lazarus causes a monumental upheaval um, to the people. So six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly ornament of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to take what was put into it. Jesus said, Let her alone. Let her keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus also to death, because, they, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. 
The next day, a great crowd who had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand this at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that this had been written of him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done the sign. The Pharisees then said to one another, you see that you can do nothing. Look, the, whole, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida and Galilee, and said to him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew went with Philip, and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing by heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show by what death he was to die. The crowd answered, we have heard, that, heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? Jesus said to them, the light is with you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said this, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had, though he had done so many signs before them, yet they did not believe in him. It was that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah, Isaiah again said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, and turn from me to heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, that they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has a judge. The word that I have spoken will be his judge on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. The Father who sent me has himself given me commandment what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has bidden me, and glory be to God forever. Amen. Okie dokie.
just pull out my notes for 12. Okay, so this scene is taking place around the time of the Feast of the Passover, and we're coming to the last Passover of the Gospel of John, um, where we have um, tons of people that are flocking to Jerusalem. And the Gospel of John, um, we know that the Lord has been multiple times now um, to the temple. In the synoptics, there's only one case that we see him. In this Gospel, we've seen him there for multiple feasts. Um, and everybody's going to be going. So there's a crowd, there's a hubbub. And so if you can imagine it, um, this great miracle that he just did a few days before, right, was, or just the day before in the Gospel of John, um, is the raising um, of Lazarus. And so obviously this is a gigantic miracle. It's not a small miracle, it's humongous. Um, and that's going to be on everybody's mouths, right? It's going to be this the, the news that this thing has happened, right? Think about Pope Cordelus VI, for example, right? If people have heard while he was alive about certain miracles, right? There's going to be this excitement when he's coming. Is that the guy who did this and this and this? Now imagine if it's somebody who literally raised someone from the dead, right? And that's what's causing this gigantic um, uh, movement among the people that, as we saw, is creating upsetness with... Uh, the Jewish leadership. So this is what we're we're walking into. Um, and so it also makes the Jews a little bit nervous because to arrest during the feast could also cause a riot if done in the, in the wrong way as well, right? And that's why the, the evangelist is, is setting up this sense of plotting and scheming right, where the leadership is just trying to lie in wait, being like, what are we going to catch this guy in? What can we use to validly take him, right? Because if we remove him, it can cause a problem. Um, and so if we do it, we've got to do it in the, in the right way. So that's kind of the context that's going on. Um, now, before we get into this, this first scene, um, we're, we're seeing the scene of this anointing of Christ, right, that in this uh, gospel is, is Mary, the sister of, of um, Lazarus. Um, and so it was customary for women to anoint guests. That part's not strange, okay? That, that's not the part that's weird. But the action that Mary does here is would be considered very extreme, okay? It wouldn't be considered um, in, the, in the norm. First of all, this, this nard, right? Nard was usually imported from India, in that time, it was extremely expensive. It was hard to come by. So there's something huge about it. Not just that, um, a day's wage at the time was about a denarii. And so the value of this nard that she's brought is about a year's worth of savings worth. It's a whole year's worth of wages put into one bottle. And the way that these bottles worked in those times was that they would be put into this, this jar, which would be potted sealed right? Because it'd basically be for single use only, because to use it, you'd have to break it. And then whatever is there is done. You never really use it again. And so to have this bottle that was worth a whole year's worth of wages, that's going to be used all at once, would have been seen as absolutely ludicrous, right? It's like, like, I, I don't even know what analogy to use in social culture today. It might be like having like a 200-year-old aged wine that costs $50,000 that can be used only once, right? Where are you going to use it on, 
Um, and so it's it's something even more epic than than that. Okay. Um, and so the, the beauty of that is that it's showing us that there's a huge value attached to this. It's not just a random act and it's not a cheap act. This is an expect an, an expensive act and an act of total adoration and self-sacrifice. Right? It's not it's not a small thing, which is why we're going to see the Lord's reaction to, to Judas's mumbling. Um and the word used, just so you guys know where some of the words come from in the church, is just an aside. It's not that important. Um, the word anoint in Greek is myrun, myron, right? And that's where we get the word myron from when we talk about chrismation and consecration. Um, and so that's that's the word that's being used right now in this uh, um, in this chapter. So let's get into them. Six days before the supper, Passover, sorry, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Um, now, we talked last time about the possibility that um, um, Lazarus could be Simon, right? That's a theory um, that exists. Another theory that exists that could also make sense of it, these are small T traditions. You can believe or not believe any of them to, to no end, like it's not a big deal, um, is that the way that this is worded is that if, if, if Lazarus was the host, if this is at Lazarus's house, you wouldn't expect Lazarus to be at the table with him because the host should be serving. And so the way that the grammar is structured is saying that dinner is being served. It doesn't say by whom. Right. And it says that Lazarus is seated with him. So another theory is that this could be Lazarus's father's home, who might be Simon. Um, and they're all looking for ways to try and make sense of these two stories. Like there's four accounts of this in the Gospels, but two stories that seem. Um, I ruined, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet um, with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. Um, again, I like to do some little asides because I think in our modern hymnology, our modern rituals, we're a little bit divorced from where they come from historically or what they might have looked like. Right. You might have noticed, for example, in the doxology of the great St. Anthony, um, the best saint, um, we say the fragrance of your virtue um, blossomed as it does in, in paradise, for example. Right. And so this is referring to some extent like this. We use hanut, we use nard. Right. If you've ever seen the bottles that we use when we're embalming the relics, right, we're still using those things, just like we do with the burial on Great Friday. Right, is that we're getting the nard, we're getting those spices, we're getting those fragrances, we're getting all those things, we put it together, and that aroma is sweet smelling, right? And it's done to the to the dead um, as well, like to the living in a certain way and to the dead in a certain way. And so we have this sense of fragrance going with the virtue, going with sacrifice, going with, with glorifying, going with respecting. Um, they all kind of, of go together. Um, and so we see here that she took, she took that and she wiped his feet with her hair. Um, now that would have been definitely seen as extra. 
Okay, like that that wouldn't be normal. And so so what St. Mary is doing here is not in the realm of, of the usual, which is a point here just to pause and, and, and ask whether or not we offer, I know it sounds like a weird question, but do we offer our hair? And I don't mean that literally, like, although it could be for some of you, but figuratively, right? St. Mary is coming in with everything that she has. She's coming with all of her wealth in this expensive bottle that she's breaking and saying is worth it for the feet of my Lord, right? She's breaking ritual custom because if she was single, having her hair out might've been okay. If she was married, it was not okay. Um, we, we think she was single, but to be at the feet, to be touching um, in this way is definitely not acceptable. And I think that we don't always think about us offering even the quote unquote most random things that we have. Um, there's a beautiful story from the Desert Fathers that I like about um, a clown um, who joined the monastery, right? And the monk who joined felt really intimidated by the other monks. He was like, these guys can fast for days without eating. These guys can pray like there's tomorrow. These guys have memorized scripture. I don't got any of that. He was like, I'm a clown. I could juggle. And so this clown actually used to sit in his cell and juggle. And he would juggle for the Lord and say, Lord, this is, this is the only thing I know how to do. Let me offer it up to you, right? And there's, there's a deep beauty in that, right? Is that we have to find out what's our hair, what's our juggling, right? Because we often struggle with how to pray, how to be in his presence, how to connect, how to show him love. Right. And we tend to want to show him love in the ritual, not that ritual is wrong, but in a ritualistic way, because we think that's the way. Right. If I loved him, I would pray X many times. I'd pray this many psalms. And those are all nice forms of prayer. I'm not taking away from them. But your offering doesn't have to only be in that way. Right. Mary just went like took a, a ritual and took it to the extreme. Right. Not to mention that the anointing of the feet would maybe not be the thing to do with with the nard um, at, at this point. Um, and furthermore, is not just this offering, but I think we've lost sometimes in our generation this feeling of being intimate with God. Right? That 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 is a thing. That's not not a thing. Right? I was I was taught by a monk from when I was 17 or 18 that I should a always have a cross. Um, and he's like, sleep with it, hold it in your hands, right? Um, I know somebody who, when he entered the monastery, um, was struggling a little bit at first. Um, and so he actually used to sleep with an icon of the Virgin, with an icon of his intercessor, um, that we can have this intimacy with them. And they do respond to it, not just the saints, obviously, but God himself, right? And that especially when we really come to, to not just trust or believe, but know that God is in all places present, right? Then that sense of intimacy would, would only grow, right? Because now we'll be talking um, with him directly. Um, sleep with icons, with a cross, cry, laugh, sing, right? Do all those things with the Lord, be relational, right? Put those things into relationship with God. And you'll find that things are more 
meaningful in your relationship with him. They'll become less distant. They'll become more intimate like St. Mary at his, at his feet. And of course, we have to have that guy um, who's a naysayer, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, verse 4, the one who betrayed him, says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? This is where you find out how much it was worth and given to the poor. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to take what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. Let her keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not, have, you do not always have me. This thing that the Lord is saying about the poor, which I think some people find a little troubling, um, may very likely be referring to um, a verse from Deuteronomy um, that says, for the poor will never cease out of the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open your wide hand to the needy and to the poor of the land. We're saying that's always going to be a thing, but this isn't what she's doing. She's doing something unique, right? Um, and I think that's important because I think sometimes we even have stupid debates, forgive my language, um, at church and service where we always try and pit against each other good works, right? Where it'll be like, oh, are you going to do this or are you going to do this? Where it's like these two don't have to be in contradiction. They don't have to be um, counter to one another. If we're able to do both, great, let's do both. Um, there's only a conflict if we can only do one. Um, over the other. Now, in Jewish traditions, because we talked about this whole kingship thing, this messianic thing that's going on, um, kings, which by definition also would have included the Messiah because they believed the Messiah was going to be a king, priests and others had to be anointed for their ministry, for their service, for their kingship. Okay. And so what's interesting here is that the Lord is saying this is actually a different kind of anointing. One that she probably had no idea she was doing, right? That anointing for most people meant those things. Whereas Christ is saying, this is not the anointing. This is anointing meant for my burial, right? She had no idea, right? Now, very interesting is that in the Gospel of John, this is set as six days before the Passover. Um, in the synoptics, this seems to be happening on Wednesday, um, which is hard to tell which what's going on but that's its own separate issue i won't get into today um it's more of an academic question but the reason i'm bringing up that it's wednesday is because something lost to us is that most of us might know that in holy week we're mimicking everything that's happened in holy week day by day hour by hour with christ to the best of our ability if we go with the synoptic account of when this event is happening um, and to be honest, it seems like there's two separate events, um, and we'll get to that momentarily. But it would have been happening at the very same time that the Passover lambs were being prepared. And so the Lord is saying, this is a preparation for, for me. Literally at that very moment, the lambs are being rounded up and prepared for slaughter um, for the Passover feast because there's not enough time on the day of Passover to do all of it because they have to stop working. Um, so there's something really big going on. Beautiful is that, again, just her love, nobody knew at that table that this woman's act of love would be the only act of love given to him of preparation before his death. Right. The next any kind of kindness shown him is going to be after he's died. 
right? And so this woman's genuine gesture became one of the most meaningful acts of history. Um, and I think this might be why the Lord says, wherever my story is told, this will be told of a memorial for her um, because of the kindness of, of the moment. Um, because, and this, this relation to his death is of particular significance. Sorry, I'm trying to organize my thoughts because usually they didn't anoint the feet of a living person. But you would anoint the feet of a corpse. You were trying to make the whole thing smell good because, again, they didn't have fridges. Everything rotted quickly. And so he's pointing out, she actually anointed my feet. That's what you do to the dead. And this is what she did for me. Right? And that's why in this chapter, we're going to see very quickly, he keeps on pointing to the hour of his glory, which for him is his death um, in, the, in, the, in the gospel of John. Um, and so we see that the same act of love always can result in either loving love or hating love. For example, the act of him raising up Lazarus has caused the Sanhedrin on one corner to be like, kill him, and Mary on the other to say, I love you with all my heart. The act that Mary is doing for the Lord is received with love by the Lord and anger by Judas, right? Actions always can be, even if they're the best of actions, are not always received in the right way or in a good way. Um, and that's why, in general, what we ought to look at is, what is the right thing to do? What is the loving thing to do, irrespective of how people react to me? Because any good act can be responded to in almost any way. Um, do, 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 do. I guess if we can reflect for a minute, and I know I've talked about this other places in the gospel, but we should all ask ourselves, are, are you, am I, are you Judas? Are you that guy? Right? That even when something amazingly nice is happening, your reaction is cynical, right? And you don't have to look far to see that that's culture today, right? Everybody will be like, oh, I can't believe that they haven't done this yet. Even like with COVID, I can't, we haven't done this yet. Then they do it. It's like, they finally did it. I don't know why they didn't do it six months ago. There's nothing that satisfies anyone, right? Same thing with, with church, same thing with service, same thing with family. Everything that we do is like, you want, you want, you want, you get, and then you still find something wrong with the getting, right? If somebody... If you were dying for someone to actually serve, they start serving and being like, but they don't even know this yet. And it's like, you were mad a day ago that they didn't serve. Today, you're mad that they don't know, right? We have to be very careful because I think we're a very negative society. Bad news sells, good news doesn't, right? And so we need to be careful that we're not just like Judas, which I think many of us are, right? Um, we have to look at our attitude towards good. And even specifically here, are you sarcastic about someone else's zeal? Because Judas here is not only just looking at something negative, he's looking at a really beautiful, zealous act of this woman and mocking it, right? And I think that that's something we do a lot, right? Like we might see that guy standing in prayer in church that has his arms like hyperextended and we laugh. Why are we laughing? 
right? I used to laugh at what I thought was the dramatic prayer of Protestants on the street, straight up. I always thought that was funny. Today, I'm like, I admire your zeal. I admire your courage to pray. Who am I to assess whether your prayer is sincere or not? I don't have any reason to judge your prayer. And if you're willing to pray in that way with such fervor, that's beautiful. I wish that I would be like that and have the same fervor, right? This woman went on a lib and, and put herself out in front of everybody to offer her love and was met with sarcasm, right? Let's make sure we're not that guy who's offering um, the sarcasm. Um, so again, we've already hinted at it multiple times, but we... We know that two of the Gospels identify the, the woman who anoints the feet as Mary. Two of the Gospels just say a sinner. Um, but in, in two of the stories, it refers to tears. And in two, it's got the ointment. Um, so the common kind of way to go, like the common kind of resolution of this issue, um, Origen presents this as, as, an, as a, an idea in modern academics too, is it seems to be that there were two separate incidents of two separate people. Um, one that was tears and wiping and, and one that was, and the specifically a context of being a sinner. And then the other one that's Mary, because there's not even a mention here of her being a sinner. Um, so they could all be one event, it's possible. And it could be two events, take your pick in terms of tradition, the fathers have, have had multiple. Um, in terms of which one you think is, is going on. I tend to, to trust that there's probably two, um, especially with um, the, the difference in dates towards like the relative to the passion um, that are given. I tend to go with that one. Um, and I want to point out something too. We've got a, re a, a thing written here about Judas's reaction. Um, and, and it seems to be that Judas had a thing about money. But there's something else going on here, and I'm connecting this to the story in the other Gospels in case it's the same story, where we read that it's after this episode that Judas walks out and goes straight to the leaders, and he arranges to get rid of Jesus, right? That's why we have Eve of Wednesday, is when we have the no kissing ritual in the church, because that's when Judas goes to cut the deal. And he goes right after that thing. So right after this, this event. Um, now, remember that the Jewish day, this is just so you can make sense of why I'm saying Tuesday night. The Jewish day starts evening, not morning, just like the church day does for us, right? So, for example, on, the, on a Jewish day, what it's, it's, it's actually exactly like right now. In Jewish land right now and in church land right now, right now is Wednesday. We're not on Tuesday anymore from sunset of, of, of what we would call Tuesday, Wednesday began, okay? So when Judas saw that scene, he was really worked up, right? Judas is from the tribe of Judah, which is why his name is a variant of the word Judah. And the tribe of Judah was the tribe David came from, Right. And their expectation was that the Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah and he's going to be king. And they're excited. And here you have this person, Jesus, that they're not sure is God yet. Right. Saying, I'm going to destroy the temple. Right. Whereas to someone like Judas, it's like, what do you mean destroy the temple? If you're not building a bigger one, we have a problem. Why would you destroy the temple? 
Now add to it all of this hoopla and the miracles and the fights and all these things that have been going on, right? And then you've got this woman who's washing the feet of Christ and touching him in ways that are completely inappropriate. And they're saying, get your hands off him, lady. That's disgusting and it's wrong. It's socially and morally completely inappropriate. And the Lord is saying, no, 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 it's great. Leave her alone, right? And so, he, so Judas is looking like, okay, you are not the Messiah, right? You're not even religious, right? And so that also would have probably been part of the instigation that causes him to go out straight to the Jews and be like, he's not the guy, right? That's probably a part of it. And I'm tying that too, because now this incident ends when the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there. They came not only on account of Jesus, but also Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead, right? Um, there's a hubbub. There's a lot of people. They want to see what's going on. Now, interestingly, just to, just to meditate on some of these random details, sometimes we believe through others, and that's okay, right? It says here explicitly, they're not all here specifically just because of Jesus and who he is. Some of them are there because of Lazarus being there whom they raised, whom Jesus raised. Right. And I think sometimes we feel like that's a lesser faith, but I don't think it necessarily is. Right. That sometimes our starting point is through the senses of finding somebody who's had a real experience to say, hey, like, I trust you. I know you. Are you sure it's real? Right. So like when they know Lazarus, they can be like, OK, is it did you really died And all these people that are there? You really saw him. Right. And it can become their own source of faith. Um, to get on there. Um, but it's also in this section we're finding out that the real reason to, for the move to our Lord's death is specifically the Lazarus scandal, right? That's why for some people, there's there's mild debate for no no reason, in my view, no, no really compelling reason. Does Holy Week start on Saturday or Sunday? Because to some, they start from Saturday because the, the raising of Lazarus was the beginning of the plot for his death. Um, because it's, it's given in the Gospel of John is explicitly why we're getting into the crucifixion that we're walking into. But what's funny here, there's a bit of an irony in verse 10. It says, they're coming here because of Lazarus. And so it says, the chief priest planned to put Lazarus also to death because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Um, it's funny because what they're actually saying is that those who receive life by Jesus' death should die because of it which is exactly what the lord is also teaching <laughs> right is that you have to die to be risen and then the jews are also doing the same thing you believe in jesus so we'll kill you um to me it's a little bit funny that the punishment for being risen risen from the dead is to kill um again um it's just weird um but again to self-question i'm big on that because i'm not a good Christian in my service. Are you functioning like the chief priest? If you see someone serve better than you, or louder than you, or more charismatic than you, or more gifted in something than you, do you try and kill that person? Do you kill that person or are you happy at their life and that they're thriving? Because warfare is of service are really huge in this regard. It's this issue that's often the cause of warfare in the service. We don't like seeing somebody 
rise up. If someone's good at the youth or the Bible and you saw yourself as being that position, then suddenly you feel threatened, right? And then you may wish them gone. And on some level, you're wishing their death. You want them removed. You want them discredited. You want them not to be in the spotlight. I don't think we're that different than the chief priest and the, and the high priest. I think we all struggle a little bit with this. Um, and we all, um, on some level, might even want attention. Um, and so we can, we can wrestle with those vices. We can wrestle with those passions. But we've got to be very careful about what we do um, and what we say. And that we don't want to silence people's gifts. So the next day, a great crowd who had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is something that already kind of happened. Um, we already talked about this at the Feast of Tabernacles. And it became a ritual associated with basically most of the major feasts that are outdoors, tabernacles, Feast of Weeks, um, and Passover, where they would come in with their palm branches and they would say, blessed is he who comes in the Lord. But they would actually be reciting um, Psalm 118, which we also pray in the Tizbaha, which I'm wondering now if there's a link to this Jewish tradition. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy and grace forever. Um, oh, give thanks to the God of gods for his mercy endures forever. That whole psalm. And at the end of it, um, in um, verse 26, is blessed be he who enters or comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Um, and so this was a common chorus to be sung during that time. And that chorus would have been said to any pilgrim coming to the temple. That's who they were talking about. Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, it would eventually have an association with the Messiah too, because these feasts came to be um, linked to Jewish independence and expectation of a Messiah. Um, but I'm trying to say that both of these were going on at the same time, because I think I grew up thinking that, oh, they recognized him as God and therefore saying Hosanna. Um, but that is quite possibly not the case, maybe some. But, but it, the general, this would have been an, a relatively normal thing to say to people coming. Having said that, there's something clearly very unique being done to the Lord. They wouldn't throw out their palm leaves to just anybody entering Jerusalem. And they wouldn't be just singing it to a particular person. So I'm saying that it's a common theme, but definitely there's something extremely explicitly being sent to the Lord where they are recognizing him as king just not the right kind, okay, um, which we'll, we'll get to in a, in, in, in a second. And so they would also, we talked about the Maccabees at the beginning, and that was why I wanted to come back to it, is that this whole ritual since the time of the Maccabees, since the time of the revolt, became a very nationalistic symbol, right? And it had full of it messianic hopes, um, and Hosanna, which means O save, which is also the name of Jesus, what it means. So they don't even realize, well, they might, they would have realized it better than we do today because they knew the language. That saying Hosanna is actually saying Jesus. It's literally saying the same word. Um, they're saying, Lord, save. Blessed be he who's coming in the name of the Lord. Um, and so the Lord is coming in. And he's coming in on a young donkey, sitting upon it. And so here we see the evangelist quoting scripture. 
saying from verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion, this is from Zechariah the prophet. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. What's beautiful about this is that the Lord is already responding to their wrong thought of him by just being on a donkey. Because he is, he is fulfilling this prophecy of, of, of this king, right, who's coming on a donkey. But political kings don't come on donkeys. They come on chariots with pomp and ceremony and with slaves and with entourage and a whole lot of noise. And so the Lord is already saying, that's not who I am, right? And in fact, we know that they're viewing it in this way because in their callings for him in the synoptics and, the, and I think even in here, they're referring to him being the son of David, right? Because David is the line of the kings. And so the Lord is saying, that's not me. I'm a different kind of king. He is more the king that we can see um, in the book of Zephaniah, the prophet, um, which I really love um, this prophecy, because this is more in line with what the Lord is doing, um, which the Lord is also fulfilling on Palm Sunday. They just might not have realized it, the Jews. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, which he says later on this chapter, I'm not here to judge you. He has cast out your enemies because he's about to say to them, I'm casting out the prince of this world. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear evil no more. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Right? This is, this is the king of, of, of Israel. Right? This is the true king. Is, is more of the Zephaniah. Um, So the Lord has basically kind of stepped away from their political side. Um, and again, I'm not going into the dogmatics of things in this study. I'm more focusing on just what it would have meant to people at the time. Um, so I'm not getting into some of the theology of Palm Sunday and all that stuff right now, um, though, though this would have been a good place for that. So the evangelist just quoted Zechariah, and it's cool because here the evangelist says the disciples didn't understand this at first, right? Like he acknowledged. He's like, it's not like we saw this and understood what was going on. It was only after that when they remembered this that they understand, they understood the link. Now, the crowd, verse 17, that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this side sign. The Pharisees then said to one another, you see that you can do nothing. The whole world has gone after him. Right. And so, again, we come back. He's returning us back to this setting. We've been carried away in this mood. And the event is bringing it back, saying, don't forget, we're dealing with a scene where everybody's mad. And that what the reason why the crowds are here is Lazarus. And now the Jews are getting the leadership getting more upset. Right? And saying, look, everyone's following this guy. They're not thinking, why are they following him? Is it good to follow him? Is he true? They're just saying, we just need to silence him. And it's funny, and I don't think it's unintentional, that the evangelist says, look, the whole world has gone after him. Right? Um, because immediately after he says the whole world has come after him, what do we see? Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And we're seeing the Gentiles are now coming to the Lord. Which might be why... It's about to follow with, and that's why his time is 
is coming. And here the word that's being used is referring specifically to not a, a Greek-speaking Jew, because those existed, but specifically a member of the Gentile nation, right? And they want in on, on Jesus, right? So they come to Philip um, and ask him, and they gave him respect. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Um, Philip goes to Andrew. Andrew would have been the oldest. Um, and Andrew goes with Philip. They tell Jesus. And Jesus' response is... Now the Son of Man must be glorified, which is tying it, I think, to the Lord saying, yes, because when the Son of Man is lifted, he'll draw all to him, all meaning the Jews and the Gentiles. And so when the Gentiles are coming, he says, yep, yeah, now is the time, right? Now is the time that I need to be glorified, which was referring to his, um, his crucifixion. Um, and he had already said that he's going to lay down his life in the earlier chapters when he talked. And that other sheep who are not from this fold are going to join, right? And so he's tying all the things that he said together. Um, then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There's a beautiful booklet written on just this verse that can, like, undo you um, as a person um, when you meditate just on this concept of grain of wheat and what it means for us to die um, as the grain of wheat. Um, but the Lord is saying, yeah, this is the only way to come to bring life is to die. And the grain of wheat is both your life, um, but it's also very much your ego. Is your ego the thing that brings you life? Or are you dead to your ego? Right? Because what's going on for most of us, the reason why we're, we struggle being the grain of wheat is that the ego, the self, the mind, the noose, if you want to get fancy, right, is caught in between the old man and the new man, as St. Paul talks about. The ego is supposed to conform itself to the new man, the one that resulted from the Lord's death, resurrection, and ascension in our baptism where we participate. But often the ego is chasing after the old man, the earthly man, the unenlightened man, the things of the earth, um, wealth, position, um, and noise. And so you need to ask whether you've died like the grain of wheat, right? When you are in your network of friends, are you satisfied and happy to hear about others or do you want things to be about you? When you speak with other people, is it mostly about you? Are you able to stay put where you are, or are you constantly chasing after promotion, money, prestige, honor? When you sign up for religious things, is it because you want an image of holiness, or because you're actually seeking truth? Is it because you want to learn or because you think you can teach? 
Do you go to things for the attention that you're going to receive? I could go on. There's a lot of things tied to this. But unless the grain of wheat dies, no life can come from it. And so here John condemns the love of one's life in this world, which we talked about earlier. Love means choosing. Hate means not choosing. He's saying, so you have to choose. Do you want to, do, do you choose mortality? That's whole gospel has been about. Are you choosing the things that die? Because this earth dies and everything in it. Whether it's the prestige, the money, the wealth, anything of those. If you choose those, then you die. You've, you, you've loved death. You've chosen death. You submitted yourself to death. Because that's what happens to those. It's not like there's an act of punishment. That's what happens to those. Those things are mortal. Those things are not given the gift of immortality and incorruption. If you don't select the world, if you hate the world, if you hate the self that's attached to the world, he's saying that now by doing that, by joining me, because I am that grain of wheat that dies and rises, you're attached to that which gives immortality and incorruption. So in hating that life, that so-called life, small l, you receive capital L life, real life. The whole theme of this gospel this is the whole entire time. And Christ is now pointing at it more and more and more and more clearly as he moves along saying, this is what's happening, right? And that's why in this gospel, St. John is constantly saying that darkness, this world, human glory are all different faces of the realm of Satan. All of those are anti-life, are anti-God. Darkness, the world, human glory. Everything has been light versus dark. Human glory versus human shame, right? Um, light versus dark. Uh, the world versus the real world, where the Father is the bosom of the Father, right? These are constantly held in juxtaposition. And a love for any of these means that you don't love him more. You choose him less. You choose the death more than you choose life. So in stressing that we need to hate one's life to live eternal, right, is that stressing again that you need to die in order to live. And the Lord had already said that about himself, but now he's telling us. Now he's telling us that if you want to follow me, because we just read that verse where he said, um, he, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there shall my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, my father will honor him also. He's saying, I already said it about me, but now I'm also telling you who would be my disciples. You can't be mine if you don't follow this way. Where I am is life, but you have to die first. And if you die, my father, just as I will be raised, will raise you too. So it's, it's compelling because this is completely contrary to the prosperity gospel that I think most Christians today follow, either like explicitly or not so explicitly, right? Is that we might not have the extreme prosperity gospel of I'm going to get filthy rich, but we do have a prosperity gospel of, yeah, yeah, if you study... If you, if you fast and pray, and if you do Wednesday and Friday, you're going to get into med school. And if you stayed up doing this spiritual work, you're going to win your soccer game. We, we have these weird things where we think that being connected to God means hookups. 
right? And Christ isn't saying that. He's saying choose life first. Um, he does not give a promise that if you do good things, you're going to have more worlds. He said, choose life irrespective of worlds. We're not concerned about what ends up happening in the world regardless. He continues, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Forgive me for already interrupting. I want to tie this to Isaiah. Right? Because Isaiah is giving us the image of the suffering servant, which is the Messiah. And pay attention to what he's saying, because a Jewish reader of this gospel would probably have made this link. We're so divorced from it today that we don't as much. Isaiah says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Why are you troubled? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan, Hermon, from Mount Mizar. So the Lord is already placing himself, identifying himself with this messianic figure. But I'd also just pause to say, some people get troubled that Jesus is troubled. But anything that is physiologically, truly human, the Lord also experienced. Only things that are intrinsically wrong, the Lord did not, because he doesn't do wrong. But whatever is natural in any way to the human is also natural to the Lord incarnate. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Actually, I'll pause again. Just think for a second. Sorry. I think we sometimes as Christians think that we're supposed to pretend that we love suffering. Right? We sometimes think that I'm supposed to act like it's the best thing in the world. And I can relate to this, like having a, like, a condition, right? When people would come up and say things, I used to say to them, oh, the Lord loves you. And that's why you got this disease, right? Cancer is the disease of God and everybody. You should be so happy that you have cancer. Why are you troubled? What kind of Christian are you that, that, that are troubled? I don't think that's necessarily true. Right, We can be happy about a good that comes from it, but I don't have to pretend that I have to like something that's not intrinsically good. That's why the Lord himself said, what shall I say? Right? He said, I'm troubled. Right? I'm bothered by this. Right? Later on, he's going to say, if, we, if, this, if this cup could pass from me, I would. If there's a non-option of this, I would take it. Right? But the Christian part is saying it doesn't matter how I feel about it. And so it's right. And that's why Christ said, but this is why I'm here. So no, I'm not going to ask for it to be removed from me. Nor am I going to pretend that I love it. This must be done. Your emotions are one thing. Truth is another. We bow to truth. Emotions come secondary, um, regardless of the source of them. Father, glorify your name. For this person I come in this hour, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing by heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake and not for mine. Now, Jewish tradition often discussed voices from heaven, which were seen sometimes as substitute for prophet, prophecy. Um, and sometimes um, in the Old Testament and Jewish stories, God would send prayers 
I would answer prayers by sending angels. Um, and that's that's why the comment is being made about the people's reactions. They're being consistent with their tradition, right? Oh, maybe it's an angel, maybe it's a noise, maybe it's this answer. That's that's what they're getting at. But I, I, there's something very interesting here. Um, I want to quote you a passage from scripture that's not canonical, okay? These are... These are side stories. This one that I'm about to read is from the Old Testament. Um, and they didn't make it not to Christian canon and not to Jewish canon. And so the only reason I'm bringing it up to, to put is that just because something didn't make canon didn't mean that people didn't read it um, and didn't mean that the church condemned all of it. And the reason why I want to read it is because it's very eerily similar to what just happened that we just read. This is from... A, a, a pseudo-epigraphical epigraphical book called The Testament of Levi, the priest. Levi didn't write this, right? Levi being the, the, the son of Jacob, um, the, 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 the leader of the priestly tribe. The heavens will be opened, and from the temple of glory, sanctification will come upon him. Jesus suggests to glorify your name or sanctify your name or make blessed your name. Glory, sanctification will come upon him with a fatherly voice as from Abraham to Isaac. And the glory of the Most High shall burst forth upon him, and the spirit of understanding and sanctification shall rest upon him. Um, and in one manuscript it has in the water, which might refer to theophany, but that's a, an, an aside. For he shall give the majesty of the Lord to those who are his sons in truth forever, and there shall be no successor for him from generation to generation forever. And in his priesthood the nations shall be multiplied in knowledge on the earth, and they shall be illumined by the grace of our Lord. But Israel shall be diminished by her ignorance and darkened by her grief. In his priesthood, sin shall cease and lawless men shall rest from their evil deeds and righteous men shall find rest in him and he shall open he has removed the sword that is threatened since adam and he will grant to the saints to eat of the tree of life the spirit of holiness shall be upon them whatever it's worth it's extremely compelling um and so just throwing that out there because if there is any inspiration of any kind i'm not claiming that i know there to be any it seems extremely compelling about this very scene that we that we just read. Um, I'm going to skip some of this. Uh, so here, the Lord is saying what I need to do, what he later called his food, which is also the food of Christians. If you want to have a real food, the real food is to the will of God, right? That's why I said the will of mine is to, I, I ate my meat for my father and his meat is to do that which he has told me to do. So when the Lord says, Father, glorify your name, what it's actually maybe meaning in a more modern context, modern, not context, modern words, is saying, God, let your plan be carried out. Right, Because the name that the Father has entrusted to the Lord, which we'll see in, in 17, um, is glorified when it's glorified through death. Um, death, resurrection, and ascension. Right, Because then the name that's being glorified is the name that the Lord comes with, which is the name of God, the I Am. Right, And so... 
only when only then will they recognize the I am. So in another way, this petition, Father, glorify your name, is the same as saying, may your name be sanctified. Or as we say, um, hallowed be thy name in the Our Father, right? It's not a request for men to praise God's name, but a request for God to sanctify his own name, right? Um, and the glorification, because he said, I both glorified it and will glorify it, will be when he says it's done, it's complete, it is finished um, on the cross. Now is the judgment of this world, now shall the rule of this world be cast out, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show by what death he was to die. Um, this is referring, again, um, to the cross. And this may refer to a prophecy from Deuteronomy, um, or sorry, from, from Numbers. Is it Numbers? Yes. Behold, my servant shall prosper, and he shall be exalted, lifted up, and shall be very high. And as many were astonished at him, his appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that the sons of men. So shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Again, it seems that this is... Um, referring to his death and, and, and resurrection. Uh, sorry, specifically the crucifixion and his wounds. So these are the last words that the Lord speaks during his public ministry. He brings back to them, um, or they're about to be the last. This is the closing part, the beginning of his closing. Um, so he's saying, I'm going to be lifted up and I'm going to be killed. And the people get confused. The crowd answers him, but we thought that the Christ, the Messiah, remains forever. So how is the Son of Man going to be lifted up? And who is the Son of Man? And he refers back to himself like he did earlier as the light. The light is with you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in that you may become sons of light. So what he's saying to them, they would have already understood this dark light analogy. What he's saying to them is that by being mine, you are now children of the light. And that's why even here, he's calling himself God. Even here, he's saying, because if only God is the true light. And I'm saying that if you're mine, you're light, which is making himself take that claim of being the source of light by being light himself. Um, but when Jesus said this, he left them and hid from them. Um, and even though it says he did many signs before them, yet they didn't believe him. Um, and he quotes again uh, prophecy um, about, about them not believing that I'm not going to go through uh, right now because we'll probably do that later. Um, I just want to pause there to say I think so many of us think that um, if we saw miracles, we'd believe. Right. And this is explicitly saying, no, they didn't. They saw people being raised from the dead. Right. They saw the feeding of the multitudes. They saw all these things and they didn't. Um, you could summarize this whole section from what St. John said at the very beginning of this gospel. He came unto his own and his own received him not. So Jesus cries out. This is the last section. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me 
seize him who sent me. He's summarizing his whole ministry. Everything he's already said, he's summarizing again. I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I don't judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has a judge. The word that I have spoken will be his judge on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. The Father who sent me has himself given me the commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has bidden me. Right? This is, again, taking us over and over to that same prophecy from Deuteronomy, the whole, the prophet, where it says of the prophet like Moses, that God says, I shall put my words in his mouth, which he just said, I speak what the Father gave me. And he will speak to them all that I command him, exactly what the Lord just said. And whoever does not hear the words which the prophet will speak in my name, I shall take vengeance on him. He's saying your judgment is going to come later because my words are going to be what condemn you because you didn't believe them. I don't even need to. You are already condemned because the truth of what I said is what's going to condemn you. Um, what does that mean? Let's say your parents said, if you put your finger in the plug, you'll be electrocuted. In the analogy, to, to, it's a horrible analogy, but to, to compare to what the Lord is saying, the Lord is saying, I'm not here that you be electrocuted. I'm telling you the truth that those who put their fingers in a socket get electrocuted. So I'm not here to judge you. I don't even need to judge you. If you put your fingers in the socket, my words already judge you because I told you the truth and you didn't listen. I didn't make you get electrocuted. You got electrocuted because what I said about electricity is true, right? That's what he's saying. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to say who's bad, who's right, and who's wrong. I'm here to tell you the truth. I am is the truth. You don't want to believe me. The consequence is yours because you chose not to believe truth. That's, um, that's what he's saying, right? And so our Lord restates his mission before giving himself up to death, and he leaves them on a note of challenge, saying, now your reign is ending. Now the, the hour of terror of the devil is ending. Now you have to choose. Light or dark? Shame with me or glory of men? Right? Because you read earlier that they preferred... Um, they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And I think that's something that our generation struggles with. I was reading um, about um, uh, Ab Trifon uh, earlier today from the Eastern Orthodox Church who got canceled from a major Eastern Orthodox platform. And I'm not in, even remotely interested in assessing whether he's right or wrong, whether the other place is right or wrong. But I'm saying that even within Christian circles, right, is that we're being divided over our response to how much in the world do we want to walk with, right? Are we the kind of Christians who are hesitant about saying what we believe because of we would rather the praise of men rather than the glory of God? 
right? I'm not talking even just about walking out and publicly actively proclaiming, although that could be a thing sometimes, but I mean, even just in responses, right? Of being that way, um, or being afraid even to respond to a direct question because we're worried about how the world will perceive us, right? I think this very question that the Lord, this very, this very juxtaposition, this challenge the Lord has put, do you want light or dark, is a real one for us because we are in an extremely polarized culture today. And now the difference between light and dark is always enunciated and, and put out. And so what Christ is challenging us all throughout this whole entire gospel is what do you love? Meaning, what do you choose? Do you choose truth? If not, it means that you hate. You don't choose love. You don't choose life. You don't choose light. You want the bread that perishes. You want the non-living water. You want the honor of men. And he says, you can take that. If you believe me, if you trust me, if you faith me, choose me. And if you choose me, then I give you real life, real light, real water, real joy. And you become the sons of my father. And so here he puts to rest his whole ministry by resummarizing everything he said from 1 through 12. And this next section that we're about to get into is very sad and very difficult. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do John 17. I get really emotional about it. Um, is his goodbye. It's a prolonged goodbye, farewell um, section where he tells them it's, he's giving his last will and testament to those closest to him. He's comforting them. He's telling them what's coming, what to worry about, what not to worry about. And then he's going to express his desire for them because now we've come to the crossroads where the people of the world, his owner received him not, are saying, well, since you're forcing the choice on us, we don't choose you. And this is going to lead now explicitly to his trial and then to his death. Um, may God grant us to choose him, um, to choose life, to him be glory now and always and to the age of all ages. Amen. Um, any uh, questions um, or comments or meditations? Um, somebody wrote one here, like a meditation, while you guys are forming questions, if you have any. Um, one thing I heard before, the church places Lazarus Saturday right before the Holy Week as a powerful reminder that the same Jesus who's about to suffer and die is the one who has the power to call the soul of Lazarus back from the dead, the resurrection before the resurrection. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think the only thing, and I think symbolically, that's nice. I think where for me, I, I, the struggle is not the right word, where I think there's a, a natural limit to any analogy. There's always a natural limit. Um, is like we said last time, is that the resurrection of Lazarus wasn't a resurrection. It was more like a resuscitation because he's going to die again. The real resurrection is going to be in, in the Lord, um, in, his, in his resurrection on the second coming. Checking with this person. Seems like 
there are not. Oh, uh, someone asked uh, elsewhere, what if we don't have hair to offer? Asking for a friend. Um, which is a fair question. You definitely have hair to offer, right? That's why I use the clown guy as an example. Um, because when he used his juggling, who would have thought juggling would have been the thing that the Lord accepts, right? Even um, like the story of St. Paul the Simple, the disciple of St. Anthony, the best saint. Um, the guy didn't even know what to offer, so he offered his discipleship and humility, and that cast out demons, right? Instead of St. Paul that, people with like the severe cases of possession, Anthony would send to him. And Paul would say, in the name of my father, Anthony, get out of him, right? Um, and there's his icon has him holding a rock, a big boulder over his head, and he's got a nosebleed, right? Because he didn't know how to deal with this one devil that wouldn't leave. And so he's like, you know what, you know what? And he got all worked up. He was like, if you don't, if you don't leave her, I'm going to stand here in the scorching sun with this rock on my head, which would have caused him to faint or collapse. Obviously, holding a rock has nothing to do with demons, right? But in his simplicity, right, he was just like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to do something, right? And just that simplicity cast out the demon, right? So no one, and Christ said it, he in the parable that two, this one, the five, whatever number, there was no one that received zero, right? So for example, let's say asking, saying for a friend, someone's gift is video games. Someone's talent is video games. Well, what if you use that talent to outreach, right? What if you use that talent to spend time with somebody who needs comfort and love? Suddenly you've offered something that seems so trivial, like playing games, as something that's very meaningful, right? For another person, it might just be their sense of humor, where they're able to uplift a whole room, right? Just by doing that, and they bring comfort. So um, fair question, but you got here, my friend. Um, must we speak out the truth when we hear lies or blasphemy? Is it acceptable in God's eyes to keep silent in the presence of dogs? Um, do not give to dogs what is sacred. Um, I think it can be. I think that it, that requires like a little bit of discernment, which we which we have to learn. Like I don't think we all have it. There's some people have the gift of discernment, but we don't all have it. Um, in the sense of, I think what matters is what my silence means, personally. Because there's a silence that I'm doing because I'm actually just afraid, right? There's a silence that I'm doing because I don't want to lose my promotion or I don't want to lose my status. Or I don't want to lose my social standing. And there's a silence that's wisdom, right? There's a silence that this is going to be abused when I throw it out, right? And so I'm not going to hand them the thing that they're going to use against Christ. That could be very wise, Um so I, I, I think there are times where it's right to keep silent, but I think that's where there should be some self-reflection uh, in following with the, the comment on the post earlier 
of, of self-accusation um, and self-questioning, not just accusation of like, why was I silent? Um, but definitely I do think there are, there are times where silence is, is, is wise. Even the Lord himself in the trial that we're going to go through spoke at certain times and did not at certain times, right? So even in the example of our Lord, he did not always um, speak up. I think what we've got to be careful is that my silence is not showing complicitness. My silence is not out of fear or, or, or shame. My silence does not empower um, the wrong in a wrong way. Um, I know that sounds vague, but I think you, I think you know what I mean. Okay. All right. I think that's it for, uh, questions. So we'll end in prayer. Uh, thank you guys again. Um, and I'll have to figure out the date for the next one because I'll be returning um, from California on a flight when the next one was scheduled. Um, so I'll figure it out and, uh, and post it. All right, let's end in, uh, in prayer. Thanks again for your patience. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, make us ready to pray with all thanksgiving. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those trespass against us. Lead us not temptation, bless from evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now the love of God, the Father, grace and be God and Son, the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all.